The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Go ahead and take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. We're going to continue through uh, that Gospel as we're going verse by verse through that. Uh, Blake, you sound horrible. Um, I was sitting there thinking, and I said, you know, that's what he gets for making fun of me uh, regarding my age. And, uh, but we're glad you're here today, Blake, and we're glad you've spread it to all the rest of us, and uh, we're hoping you get well. What dedication, right? Um, hey, before we break into the Gospel of Mark, I want to mention something to you, though. Uh, many of you have, or, or many of you do participate in giving to our move offering, where from that our debt retirement, but half of that goes to missions, and one of the uh, projects or uh, ministries that we're doing in Liberia currently, where we started in April training 20 national pastors equipping them through theological courses where they'll never have an opportunity at all to have any kind of equipping and training. We have 20 men that we are training there. And on Thursday of this week, I think it was Thursday or Friday, Glenn and Terry Burkeen, who you may know Terry, he's associated with Club 180 in Cumberland, Kentucky. Some of you have been there on mission trips. Uh, but they are there in Liberia now, and they will begin teaching course number two to these pastors there. And I just want to keep it before you that you are having an impact through your prayers and your giving through the move offering uh, to train these 20 men you saw pictures before who would never have an opportunity and so isn't it neat that God uh, wants to use this local body not only here in our local area on mission but around the world and let's pray for Glenn and Terry as we pray uh, concerning the word this morning so would you pray with me as we pray for Glenn and Terry father we thank you so much um, that, Lord, while we may not physically be there in Liberia with Glenn and Terry, God, by our prayers and through our giving and our heart, Lord, to see others be discipled who can make disciples, God, we're so thankful that you've chosen and allowed us to be used in that fashion. And so, Lord, we want to pray for Glenn as he begins to teach this week. God, we pray for strength in his physical body, emotional, and uh, Lord, his health, God, that you would keep him strong this week. Father, I pray for those men that have come from different areas all around that country of Liberia, God, and have made great sacrifice themselves to be equipped and trained. Father, we pray that this week the word will have its effect in their hearts, that you'd equip them to greater capacity to be disciple makers within their local churches and in that area in Liberia. Father, I thank you for those that have a heart to uh, see your mission fulfilled, Lord, through their prayers and their giving in this body. God, we pray that you would, uh, Lord, allow us to do not only uh, this training here in Liberia, but God, as you would expand that opportunity in other places around the world, just like we do here locally. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Now, Father, as we begin to open your word this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, God. As we contemplate what Mark is writing about here in this gospel, in this extended and immediate family of Jesus, and Lord, that we'd recognize and, and see, Lord, how good night, magnificently blessed and fortunate we are, God, to be adopted into your family Lord, sealed by the blood of Jesus, Lord, that that relationship will hold fast for all of eternity. 
So, Lord, open our hearts and our minds in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we read the passage, um, when you think about this context of family, anthropology, sociology, religion, uh, all the other ologies would agree on this one simple fact. And that is, is that the family is the basic, basic building block in all of society. Uh, that God has designed it to be that way. And in society where there's a breakdown of family, there is ultimately going to be a breakdown in society as well. We see the consequences of that in our culture and in our society. But whether it's in our society or it's an unsophisticated society somewhere on the other part of the globe, the family is the glue, really, or the family unit is the glue that holds down societal structure. And if the family falls apart, society inevitably will fall apart as well. And God has created it. God has designed it that way. Another way we might say it is as the family goes, so does society. And as we begin to look at Mark's gospel this morning, there's, there's some ebb that, that Mark begins to disclose in Jesus' life and his ministry the fact that he had a real natural family, a biological family, but Mark's going to begin to introduce to us through his gospel this, this concept, and not just a concept, but the reality of the fact that while you and I have a natural family, if we've trusted Christ as our Savior, if we've placed our trust in Him, then God has made us a part of His spiritual family that will last for all of eternity. The metaphor or the phrasing used throughout Scripture to talk about the body of Christ has many of these family terms that are used throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, but in particular the New Testament. There are phrases that we'll read in Scripture like the family of God, that we who have trusted Christ and are a part of the body of Christ, we are considered children of God. That the Bible teaches that apart from that relationship to Christ, before we became a part of the family of God, we were literally children of the evil one. We were children of Satan, separated from God. We may not have acted like that, but the Bible says that we were of His lineage, if you will, because of our fallen nature. But the beautiful thing is, is that while we were a part of that, Christ, by what He did for us, we have been adopted into the family of God. We were once orphans, unfathered, if you will, but God loved us and brought us to His family. The phrase is used of our relationship to Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ, meaning that all that Christ has as an heir to the Father, we share in that with Him as well. And so the Bible is packed full of this. And as Mark begins to unfold in his gospel, we see the reality of this household of faith pointed to. We understand and see that while we may be in our natural families, and there are times that there are things that happen in our natural family that separate us. Anybody ever experienced that? The good thing or the beautiful thing about us being a part of this spiritual family of God is that the fact that we are a part of that has been 
purchased, has been, has been laid hold of by the fact that Jesus shed his blood and we are literally born again spiritually and that is something that can never be undone and we're kept together as a family by the blood of Jesus and the spiritual rebirth that he enables us to have. And so let's begin to read, beginning in verse 7, and I'm going to read all the way through verse, uh, verse 21. Come back and make a couple of comments before we get more into this. So follow along with me as I read. Verse 7, Mark writes for us, uh, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. Now, if you remember the weeks before, we've seen that the crowds just begin to build more and more around Jesus. We see the miracles that he's performing. We see his uh, profession that he is able to forgive sins. We see the fact that um, he is saying that there is a different way other than what the Pharisees are laying on you of all these burdens, extra requirements to the law, and that there's no way to have salvation through the law. But I have come to provide a better way, which God always intended was by faith. And so his teaching and his miracles are drawing all of these crowds. And then verse 8 it says, And uh, they came from all over Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, uh, the Jordan, from around there, Tyre and Sidon. And when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready, uh, for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So the crowds were getting so great that Jesus was concerned about being crushed by the crowd. Verse 10, For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him just to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And then in verse 13, says, and when he went up to a mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, uh, who he later gave the name Peter to, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, of which they termed the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Aphias, Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. Now listen to verse 21. And when his family, that is his natural family, his, his blood relatives, his half-brothers, his mother, when the family heard it, they went out to seize him. They were saying that he is out of his mind. Now picture the scene, if you will. These, these crowds are following after Jesus. He's performing all of these miracles, and the crowd really is becoming a mob around him. And there's concern with the crowd that's pressing in around him that if he's not careful, he's going to get crushed by the crowd. So he has his disciples prepare a boat to get away from, from them. And possibly he was preaching or teaching from the boat there set off by the shore. And there are all these that are following Jesus. And, but Jesus points out a number of them that he calls his disciples. We talk a lot about 
discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus. And the one thing I want us to notice that as we look at this idea of disciples, those that were following Jesus, there are really kind of three different crowds that we find within this context. Number one, there are those disciples, the ones that were following after Jesus, who were only there to follow after Him to see what they might be able to get from Him. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, we've got a need and we just want to come to Jesus because we know Jesus is, is meeting these needs and He's healing people and we just want to get from Him what we can. And I'm reminded when Jesus said that a wicked and perverse generation seeks after a sign. And so we've got those that are, that are following Jesus. But among them, there are those others that are going from place to place with Him. They're, they're following Him, and maybe they're not there just to get what they can out of Jesus, but there's something in His message. There's something about Jesus that's an attraction to Him, and they're hanging with Him. But then among all of them, there are these 12 that we see that He called out, whom He wanted to call out, that these guys, if I can use the term, were bona fide disciples. You remember we looked at them, those that are in the list here, as Jesus had called them. And when he's calling them, you remember Matthew, who is the tax collector. And he was literally sitting there at his booth as a tax collector. And Jesus called him. And Mark tells us that Matthew left everything, laid it right there. Mark left his job. He, he left his means of income to follow after Jesus. And then there's James and John, Peter, who were all fishermen and tells us that they, they literally left their nets that were there. Again, left everything, their livelihood, so that they could follow Jesus. It's interesting when I look at the definition of this word that's used here for disciple, and if I summed it up in two things, it means two things. It means a disciple is one who is a committed learner. One who wants to learn from the master, if you will to learn His ways, to learn about Him. But then there's the secondary part of the definition that not only is that person a committed learner, but they are also a submitted follower. And I would propose to you that these last 12 were those who were not only learners, but they were committed followers of Jesus, and they were willing to submit to Him and follow everything. The same that He calls us to as being disciples. He tells us we've got to leave everything. Now, some of that He might give back to us, if you will. But He calls us as disciples and followers of Him. He challenges us, He calls, and He literally demands that we're willing to leave everything else behind to follow Him, and even, as we'll see, our natural family to follow Him. We're going to unfold this and unpack it as we go along. But, but I want us to look at one thing first of all. Back, back here in verse 13, it says, Jesus went up on the mountain and He called to Him those He desired or those He wanted. It's interesting, this word that's used, called, is the same word that, that we might think of or that's used when He calls us unto Himself. That when you and I came to know Jesus, that God literally called us unto Himself. It's not that He just picked up the phone and said, Hey, pal, I want you to come over. But there's a 
calling that in that way that he literally calls our name. And I want us to notice that when Jesus called these disciples, when he called these twelve, first of all, Mark said that he called to him those he wanted. And the opposite of that, these guys didn't choose to follow Jesus, but it was God's almost irresistible draw on them where he called them and they surrendered to him. It's not something that they volunteered to do, where Jesus was out begging for others to follow him and saying, would you please volunteer? You know, we put in the bulletin, hey, we need volunteers in this. Just hoping that somebody will say, yeah, nobody else will, so I'll do it. It wasn't this kind of thing. It wasn't that they just volunteered, nor did they self-appoint themselves as apostles of Jesus. But Mark makes it clear here that he chose those, he called to him those that he wanted. And of course, Mark goes on to say that they were called and they were sent out. And they were sent out to share with others the gospel, to draw them out of darkness and to light. And we remember that. But I want us to look for just a minute at, at, at the group that Jesus called to himself. It's kind of a ragtag group of guys, really, when you, when you really think about it and look at the ones that he called. Of the twelve that are mentioned here, and it's the same list that are mentioned in all the other Gospels, I find it comforting to know that among the twelve, there are four of those that God himself called that we never hear another thing about in all of Scripture. Kind of gives me hope, right? It's kind of the no names, if you will, but, but God called them and used them. He sent them out, and nowhere else is their name recorded of any great exploits that they might have done. But He called them, and they were faithful to follow Him, not only to learn from Him, but to surrender and be obedient to Him in His life. So let me encourage you this morning. If you're sitting here feeling like, man, what, what's God's purpose in my life? Stop worrying about God's purpose in your life and just follow Him, and He'll unfold it to you as you go along. When I look at this list, of course, we know there's the one, Judas Iscariot. He was a traitor of Jesus. He denied Jesus. But of these twelve, there were four of the guys that were fishermen. Now, it may be hard for us in an inland area to really think about what a fisherman may have been in that day. How many of you watch any of the... Um, how many of you... Let me rephrase that. How many of you are addicted to the reality shows that I am of the tuna fishermen? Or you know those. How many of you wives let you watch those shows? Uh, you watch any of these shows and you begin to get an idea of how fishermen live their lives. They're kind of a cut of a different cloth. They don't kind of filter into what normal culture and society. They're, they're kind of independent thinkers. They, they, they're owned by no one. They go out and do their own thing and they live a pretty gruff life. Kind of the way if you're like me, you're a sailor, the way you once lived your life. And so he's got these fishermen that are there with him, nasty, dirty guys. And then in the midst of this crowd, he's got the one Matthew, a tax collector. 
Now a tax collector, Matthew was a Jew, and, and a tax collector within the Jewish community was looked at as one who was a traitor of their own people. Because a tax collector would not only take money from the Jews to give them to the Romans who they literally hated, but it was known that a tax collector not only would collect tax for the Jews, but they would also collect a little surcharge for their own pocket as well. And so they were traitors. And here Jesus selects this guy. Among them is this guy named Peter, who is described to us as a zealot. We don't understand this, but the best comparison that I can use today to describe Peter is that Peter had some of the same thoughts that we might say these guys that are connected with ISIS or terrorists or these fringe groups would have had as well. You see, Peter was not only a religious zealot, but he was also a political zealot. And he was a part of a group that attempted many times to overthrow the government of Rome. And so here you got in your crowd this guy Peter that we all like to make fun of. Peter's like some of us that he engages his mouth before the brain ever gets engaged, you know. Do you remember there when Jesus is in the garden and they're coming to arrest Jesus? Who was it that pulled out their knife and cut the ear off of the, of the soldier? It was Peter. How would you like to have a guy following along with you that you're going to call out to begin this movement that's willing to use his knife at a, at, the moment, at a moment's notice to cut another person's ear off? Here's the thing I notice in this, though. Along with Thomas the Doubter, Thomas would be what I would call the Eeyore of the crowd. Everything's always negative. Always questioning everything. Maybe saying, well, Jesus, we've never done it that way before. Until I see the hole in his side and the holes in his hands, I'll not believe Thomas the Doubter. Well, I think it's clear with all of this list, and it's very different than a list that you and I might have compiled if we were going to get guys along the way for us to start a movement that, to this day, has never been matched by any other movement in the world, and that is the Christian faith. But I notice among this group is there is not a single professional clergy among them. God just calls ordinary, everyday folks like you and I. He doesn't call us because we have some special natural ability when we're born in the natural. He doesn't call us because we have some charisma about us, a charismatic personality that he thinks he can use for himself because he lacks anything. And he says, you know what, I need that person on my team because they've got that personality that's just glowing. He doesn't call any of us because we have an IQ that's just off the charts or off the record. He just calls lost sinners unto himself, and he equips and he uses us for his glory. Isn't that encouraging? Pick up with me in chapter 3 of verse 22. After he moves from there, Mark tells us that the scribes, that is the Pharisees, who had come down from Jerusalem. Remember we said last week that at the end of the episode last week after he had healed the man with the withered hand that the Jews, the Pharisees, had determined from that point that they were going to seek a way that they might not just arrest Jesus but kill Jesus. And so here we see again they're following everywhere he goes and 
When the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they were saying about Jesus, He is possessed by Beelzebub, or Satan. By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And Jesus called them to him, and he said this in the parable. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder the house. And what Jesus is simply saying is, listen, it's preposterous to think that I am operating by the spirit of Satan, by Beelzebub himself, because it wouldn't make any sense that Beelzebub would come against himself, or the devil would come against himself. A house that's divided cannot stand. And then he goes on in verse 28, and he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And Jesus says, listen, a man can blaspheme God in, in any way. And to blaspheme God means to misuse His name, to discredit Him. to And that sin can be forgiven. But He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, that sin can't be forgiven. In my Christian life, I've, I've met individuals in different states, and sometimes there are those who are living under this oppression, in a sense, if you will, because they feel like there's no hope for them, because somewhere along the way, they believe that they have committed the unpardonable sin and blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I've also seen others walk in fear as believers in a fear that they might blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And in that quantum, I've heard a lot of misguided teaching as to what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit or to commit the unpardonable sin. Now, let me break this open just a little bit. And let me start by saying this today. The episode that we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 28, is a sin where Jesus talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit cannot happen to you or me or anyone else today. Why? Because Jesus is not present proclaiming himself to be Messiah. You see, it was the Holy Spirit... We remember at the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he hears the Father proclaim from heaven, my Son, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. And immediately after that, the Holy Spirit sends him out to the wilderness. And it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was fulfilling the will of the Father. The predominant message of Jesus was that Messiah... The one that had been promised. I am Him and the Messiah is among you. And it was the Holy Spirit who bore witness to that. And the sin that they were guilty of in that day was to 
say that the Holy Spirit is making a mistake or he's a Satan to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. And so their sin simply was unbelief. The only sin that cannot be forgiven of man is to reject the witness of the Holy Spirit of who Christ is to bring us to Him. So if you're here this morning and maybe somebody's told you that you've committed the unpardonable sin or you're walking in fear that, that you will, let me tell you this. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, You've been forgiven. Signed, sealed, and delivered. His blood's been shed. You've placed your faith in His blood. You've been brought into the family of God. And that is an eternal family that you've been a part of. But I'll tell you this. If you're here this morning and there is the witness of the Holy Spirit into your heart and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and you continue to ignore that, you push back on that, He draws you and draws you and draws you and you go to your death rejecting that, then that is an unforgivable sin to reject the witness of the Holy Spirit. There's no second chance. There's, there's no other opportunity after that point. There's no one here that can pray you out of that. It's done, and it's for all of eternity. Jesus said this in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. He said, he's talking to his disciples, he said, But now I'm going to him who sent me. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. The Helper referring to the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm the one that's going to send Him to you, and when He comes, here's what He'll do. He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Notice what the work of the Holy Spirit here is. The work of the Holy Spirit to you and to I and to all of those that are lost, is to convict of sin and convince us of the righteousness of God and the judgment that's to come. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit convicted you of sin? Now that sounds almost like, what? Listen, had He not convicted you and I of sin, we never would have recognized that there is a righteousness of God, that there's no way that we can attain of ourselves. So there's got to be another way to attain that righteousness. And when He convicted us of His sin, our sin, not His sin, convicted us of our sin, He also convinced us of God's undying love for us in that He sent His only Son, that He would shed His blood, that if we would trust Him, then we would have eternal life. Let me encourage you as you go out to witness during the week, giving testimony of, of God in your life. If you have opportunity to share, with the different individuals, I want to free you in saying this. It is not your responsibility to convict them. Now, a lot of us think it is, right? But it's the Holy Spirit. Listen, you and I are not capable of convicting another one of their sin. We are capable of condemning them in their sin. 
But it's the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit that can convict man's depraved heart that they're a sinner. You're not capable of pricking their conscience and making them recognize that God is righteous and they're unholy. It's only the Holy Spirit that can do that. You and I are not able to persuade one another. I don't care if you have the best apology in the world. You and I are not able to persuade one to have believing faith. The Bible says the faith that we have is a gift of grace from God that we might trust Christ. What am I saying? I'm saying, folks, it's the Holy Spirit. You can't do enough tricks. You can't do enough programs. You can't do enough... Now, we're to be faithful... To proclaim the message of the gospel and to give witness to what God has done in our life. But the saving of an individual is not up to you and I. It's up to Him. I had a lady share with me the other night. She's in her 80s. And she was so excited because a prayer that she had had for some 60 years was fulfilled just two weeks ago. And that was that she had a son that she had been praying for for over 60 years. She said, I finally gave up. I got smart and realized that all of my jabs were not going to do anything to save him. And all I've done is for 60 years, and I've just learned that my son has surrendered his life to Christ. Isn't that amazing? You see, she recognized that there was nothing she could do. She could pray and she could be faithful. But it was God who had to save him. You see, salvation comes through the Word, the proclamation of God by the Holy Spirit of God. That's why the writer in Hebrews says that faith comes by hearing, or excuse me, Paul says in Romans, faith comes by hearing and that of the Word of God. And so when we come to know Christ, we're immediately adopted into His family and while we have natural family, that natural family is temporal at best. But we are brought into a family that, in a sense, supersedes our natural family. In that our natural families will not last for all of eternity, but our spiritual family will. And it's been sealed by the blood of Christ to bring us into the family. And there is a Father who's omnipotent will keep us in His family. Look what He says in verse, 21, in verse 31. And His mother, that's Jesus' mother, and His brothers, or half-brothers, came... And they're standing outside. They sent to Him and called Him. Now let me take you back to verse 21. They weren't there to knock on the door and say, Hey, Jesus, we're, your family's here to see you. They were there to seize him. Why? Because they thought he had gone loco. He lost his mind. And so they couldn't get into Jesus, and they sent word to tell them, Listen, your family is out here. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? Looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That almost sounds like a cruel thing for Jesus to do and say. We're saying, listen, your, your brothers 
and your mother are outside, and, and almost as if it can appear this way, that Jesus just kind of dismisses them or dismisses that. And he says, my real brothers and sisters are here, referring to his disciples. Now, was Jesus being mean by saying this? Was, was he ostracizing his family? No. There's a point that Jesus is making in this, and the point is, is this. Again, that our natural families are temporal. Our, our blood relations are temporal. That ultimately they'll cease when we die, and some have experienced where family separations because of different stuff, because we all live in a dysfunctional family, right? Somebody here that does not live in a dysfunctional family. We all do. Sometimes I get the idea everybody else is dysfunctional, but we're not. It's hard to see your own, your own, your own mess when you're in your own mess, right? I'm not talking about you, honey, but I'm thinking about you and me. And some of us in this room, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, man, you've experienced that hurt and that pain and separation in your natural family. Jesus says, listen, this is just temporal. There's, there's another family that is of far greater importance, and that is your spiritual family. Where you have been adopted into this family by God Himself. You see, there'll be no natural families in heaven. Contrary to what Hallmark Christmas movies say, the Bible says there'll be no giving of marriage. There'll be no procreation. Do you ever, have you ever experienced where you come in contact with somebody that, that you recognize and realize, man, there's a bond here that, that I have that seems to be far greater than I have with any of my natural family. And it's within the body of Christ. And what brings us together in that is the bearing of witness of the Holy Spirit that He has placed in us. And we recognize and realize that we're a part of the family. Two thousand and four, I was in Kashmir, which is northern India, a very contested region of the world for hundreds of years, literally. Vast population of Muslim, and they fight over the land between Hindu Indians and, and Muslims. And I was there conducting a class of maybe 30 students, the same kind of Bible courses we're teaching in Liberia now. And within the group of students that were there, there was a young lady in her mid-twenties or so that, that, that just had some horrible disfiguration. Her hands were all knotted up and her arms were like this and she wore her head covering that covered part of her face and when she'd walk she'd she'd just kind of have to and I was wondering what what's her story what what what's taking place why is she this way and so I was asking my interpreter and he said well 
she comes from a family in a village not too far away from here, maybe a hundred kilometers, where her father is the Hindu priest in that village. And someone had come there and she had heard the message of the gospel of Christ and the Holy Spirit drew her and she surrendered her life to Christ and she made Him Lord of her life. She received Him as God's offering for salvation. She trusted Him and she made it known that she had trusted Christ only. Now that was important. Because in the Hindu religion, there are about a million different gods, and they'll accept Jesus, but they kind of put Him on the shelf with every other Hindu god that there is. And when her father had learned of this through others, that she was going around the village professing Christ as Lord, the Son of God, he went to his daughter and said, Honey, you, you, you can't do that. You cannot profess Christ as Lord. And I'm telling you, as your father, you've got to denounce Him as Lord. And Dad, I can't do that. He begged her, please denounce Him as Lord. I can't do that. And the father, who's a Hindu priest, recognizes and realizes and tells her, if you don't do that, then I'm going to have to take other measures. She continued to profess Christ, and one day he and other priests brought her to the center of the village and put her there on that dirt floor, and they took rods. We still have those today in parts of the world. And they called out to her to denounce Christ, and she wouldn't do it, and they began to beat her with the rods. And as she'd throw her arms up to block the rods, the rods would break the bones in her body and she was mangled and she was driven out of the village. Can you imagine a father doing that to his own daughter? In God's providence, He brought her to this place where, where I was there teaching, where there were members of her spiritual family. He brought her in as a part of their family. Following the first service, I was standing out in the lobby. A lady comes up to me and she's got tears in her eyes. She says, I got to tell you, she said, your story about the Hindu girl, I too suffered from my family of being excommunicated from my family because I've professed Jesus as Lord. You see, our natural families may reject us. Our natural families may be in dysfunction. But Jesus paid a price so that not only you and I could be saved, but you and I could have the hope of an eternal family that He has brought us in and He's placed us in that will last forever and is held by His blood. In closing, let me ask you these questions. Do you know for sure this morning that you become a member of the family of God? Not just that you sign your name on a list that said, yeah, I'm a member of a church now. Not just something that, yeah, I, I was baptized when I was a kid, and yeah, I, you know, I was born into it, and so I'm a Christian. And No, have you come to a place that you recognize and you realize that you know 
that you're a sinner and that there's no way for you to have salvation and the righteousness of God except by trusting what Christ has done for you? And are you willing to follow Him as a disciple of Jesus, willing to lay down everything to follow Him? Only the Lord can speak to you that answer. Then, secondly, let me ask you this. Being a part of that spiritual family, are you committed in relationship to those who are your brothers and sisters here? And living life with them, doing life with them, and are you committed to make others disciples who will then become followers of Christ who will make others disciples? So Jesus calls us to. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.